0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
1: Become a member during our 2017 summer drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now.
0: Ooh, I like
2: Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. Happy Father's Day. It's a beautiful Sunday here in Brooklyn. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and we're here at Roberta's Pizza as usual. Um, But it's also a great weekend to go to the farmer's market. I've been having a lot of fun there lately. Um, And my guest today goes to show just how much uh, you can be inspired. Uh, She actually used to work at the farmer's market um, with Hudson Valley Duck. But also, it's really interesting where a conversation with a farmer can take you, and what kind of journey or career that can lead you on. So, um, I'm really pleased to welcome Rachel Mamaine to the show. Thanks for having me. And in the introduction of her book, Mastering Stocks and Broths, she recalls um, going to a farmer's market on this, oh, uh, just this mission to make a degustation of lamb, which you saw in a Thomas Keller cookbook. And um, asking the farmer for a very precisely sized baby lamb, and um, however, it wasn't in season yet. <laughs> and she learned a lot from that,
3: um, and she's learned a lot since. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that, Rachel? Or so what? This was twenty years ago when yeah. the French Laundry first came out, and I was an ambitious home cook. I was working in high tech in Seattle, and I was taking the The money um, that I was making on top, and I would go to the farmers' markets on the weekend and I became obsessed with sourcing uh, the highest quality ingredients that I could and so when I read thomas keller 's Degustation of Lamb recipe in the French Laundry, it was one of the first Recipes that I had read that was written as a narrative, and mm-hmm. so it started with find a 28 pound baby lamb. And I'm like, sure, okay. <laughs> so, so I go to my favorite farmer at the Ballard Sunday um, Market in Seattle, and I and I ask him for very specific um, weight, and you know, and and I ask about how it, you know how how they're raised, and mm-hmm. and again, keep in mind this was 20 years ago, and so. So farmers, um, small farmers, care very much about um, about pasture and um, and and sourcing quality. And they have their own timing. Yeah. Yes. Per um... Um, But he laughed at me because I was about three months early, and he's like, "There's no way I can guarantee that weight, <laughs> but but we'll we'll work on it. it." It sounds like you had a good dinner
2: party anyway. It it came out well, although there's a few other learning curves uh, <laughs> to be made. Um, Apparently, um, and you know, this book is so extensive, and it really is a master book of stocks and broths, but when you're first learning about how to make a quick sauce, um, you found out that it's actually not so quick. Yes. And And um, I would love to read from your book a little bit. Go for it. So you write, a great misnomer in cul- culinary terminology might not exist than when describing the quickness in making this quick sauce. A quick sauce builds on existing stocks, usually chicken and veal, and relies on roasting bones and vegetables to bring out flavor, followed by iterative, iterative glazing, deglazing, reduction, and clarification. The dumbing down of its name is intended to distinguish a sauce made in small batches on the same day from a classic stock made in big batches over several days and reserved for future use. It takes several hours of simmering alone to arrive at the first extraction and multiple rounds of straining to achieve a sauce without particles. To the home cook, this method hardly qualifies as expeditious, but to a passionate and patient one, it can be the beginning of a love affair with process, with tradition, and perhaps most importantly, with flavor.
3: Only I messed that one up, because I started it <laughs> two hours before guests arrived. I was like, it's a quick sauce. I mean, it's going to come together in no time. Yeah. <laughs> Oops.
2: Well, so since, since that time, Rachel, you've been on a journey to, to master stocks. Um, you have, um, you're the founder of Brooklyn Bullion. It's a value-added, uh, well, you can talk a little bit more about that, but essentially you make stocks. And this was before the sort of, like, goop-esque or, you know, wellness trend that bone broths have become, where it's seen as this, like, something to take a shot of. Um, it's more like an energy drink or something like that. Uh, what do you make of that trend? Or It's not why you're getting into the
3: movement, right? Absolutely. It's a great question. <laughs> um, and it's, it's one of my favorite to answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I started Brooklyn Bouillon, it was intended to be a culinary stock company that helped small, responsible livestock farmers extend their harvest. Uh, at the time, bones weren't much in demand. Right. The truth is that the bone broth trend is great for farmers because it is increased the value of bones. Um, before, bones would often be rendered at the process, uh, processor because it didn't make financial sense to haul them back to cold storage. You have to consider that bones are heavier than most classic cuts and classic cuts. So flesh, right? Yes. And would yield a greater return and um and resources at farms especially cold storage are often in short supply yeah so um What it comes down to is that this is a cautionary tale. Uh, (laughs) The hype around bone broths is wrought with nutritional error. We made this mistake in 1800s France, where food chemists were hired by the government to extend the food supply through scientific means. They would use bone digesters to extract gelatin and essentially feed diluted glue to the infirm. And over time, makers of what they called meat extract had to change their marketing tactics because this diet was leaving patients malnourished. Oh my gosh. Um, but don't get me wrong bone <laughs> broths are delicious they're high in protein and they're plentiful with electrolytes what you said about them being uh, mm-hmm. a, like an energy drink they're great mm-hmm. they're not much different than culinary stocks that are made with care okay um but what it comes down to is they're they're not a miracle cure
2: yeah i mean they've been around forever too so it's like it's nothing new right that's happening right a lot of chefs um, roll
3: their eyes when, when yeah. people say bonbon. well
2: it's also not really about flavor which is what you know you're all about and in, in fact uh, you have this great quote from Escoffier about saying that you know stocks are the foundation of good cooking without a good stock the food is crap yes. or something well he
3: didn't say that but <laughs> <laughs> he basically did um, so actually in the book um, we we you know, I, I do have recipes um, for bone broths where it makes sense mm-hmm. and the, the biggest difference between um, between the way I what what I call a bone broth, and, and I, I think what mm-hmm. what, uh, what nutritionists do oh, okay. is that I employ um, a rémilage, and so instead of the bones, qu'est-ce que c'est? A rémilage it <laughs> means a to rewet the bones. Um, oh. So you take the same bones and you run them what through <laughs> a second time, mm-hmm. and then you marry the two bone, uh, the two batches, the primary and the secondary stock. But what this does is um, it creates a, a technically accurate stock, um, and when you reduce it, you have the concentration that you're looking for, in, a, in, in what people call a bone broth.
2: Wow. Okay. So, Rachel, tell me a little bit about how you jump from not jump, but you know how <laughs> you found this use for bones, and w- where you came from. You know, being a Green market vendor for Hudson Valley Duck and uh, running a uh,
3: Brooklyn bullion company. Well, when I worked with Hudson Valley Duck Farm at Green Markets, I i uh, i I was asking a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. It was a great opportunity. I was essentially going from from making an excellent living in in high tech right. and then I moved to New York city and i 'm like, Oh, I want to work in food and and <laughs> you you imagine where where that might go in terms yeah. of of my foundation uh-huh. so i was um, I was getting as much information as I could, and my Heartstrings were pulled when I learned that what is gold to chefs—the the bones of the animal—were being left at the processor because small farms who cared for these animals couldn't afford to to, to bring them to market, mm-hmm. or or if they were at the time, they were often giving them away for free. Yeah, and
2: and they they also. Tra- to get to the processor that would make, maybe um, make more use of the bones, you would have to travel a long time, right? And that would stress out the animals?
3: Yes. understand? Uh, yeah. So, so over the, the last generation um, and a number of years, slaughterhouses um, have been met with economic tension. Mm-hmm. And the ones that remain... Um, tend to accommodate the larger, larger producers, facility, yeah. and so small farmers have to vie for space on the calendar to have their animals harvested or provi- processed, mm. and um, and they sometimes have to have to travel them, um, yeah. which does stress the animal and can affect the flavor of the meat. And it's expensive. Yeah, and, yeah,
2: yeah. It seems like a problem. So okay, so. Did you want to add anything else to like how you started um Brooklyn Bullion and uh where that where that idea came from or did we go there already? Well,
3: I mean <laughs> it it really just came from speaking with farmers and mm-hmm. learning that uh that there was uh there there was a gap in the market where um where we could bring attention to it. At the time uh there you, you could find maybe one type of stock in the freezer section, but Everything else was um, was shelf stable, mm-hmm. and when you look at the USDA the shelf stable stocks is not really the same. Exactly, when you yeah. look at the USDA requirements for what a broth needs to be, um, there's there's no bones in there. I mean, I
2: love how um, you know we went from the canned chicken stock or whatever and beef stock to the curtains, <laughs> like as if there's any difference. But it's still you know preservative. It's not the it's it's not the same as what you're making. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, what. Okay. Why is it better?
3: <laughs> well, so when you go to an amazing restaurant and you have a dish and, and you look at it and it looks pretty simple. There's you know some meat, some vegetables, some sauce. And you're like, I'm going to make this at home. And then you go home and you try to recreate it using a boxed stock. Uh, what you're essentially getting are glutamates and salt and uh, <laughs> and fats and uh, and you taste it and you're like well but, but I th- you know I thought I was a good cook um, you know a good chef is going to start from the very beginning um, and what's amazing about bones that I've learned over the years is that there are many uses for them that even go beyond stocks and broths and um, and, and so it's. Uh, to 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 a chef, you know, it's where you it's where you start. It's the gold, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a lot more about um, those other uses after a
2: quick little commercial interlude and I wanted to take a moment to remind you that this show is only possible thanks to member donations and we would not be able to reach you every week without the generosity of heritage radio network members around the world so now's your chance to join the club because heritage Radio's summer membership drive is back becoming a member is very easy and it comes with limited edition summer swag like t-shirts drink cozies and pins for your sweet jean vest you can sign up for a one-time donation become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritage radio donate all right and we'll cut to a quick little commercial interlude and be right back chatting with rachel
0: Bob's Red Mill is a proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network and a big supporter of organic farmers. Ray and Tom Williams are two farmers who have worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray shares what their relationship with Bob's Red Mill means to them. We thought that for over the long term, we thought it would make sense,
2: better sense for the soil. Also, we thought that, uh, It was something that would improve the quality of the food uh, supply. We're lucky in that we're working with Bob's Red Mill. We're part of a uh, regional food network. Uh, With Bob is a fundamental uh, relationship and cornerstone to that. We also work with other best-of-class people in the Northwest and we're thankful for the long-term relationship that's brought uh, good things to the soil and good things to our long-term farm economic plans we appreciate his attitude toward absolutely high standard for the benefit of his customers we take pride in meeting those standards
0: learn more about bob's red mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com podcast
2: Alright, we're back chatting more with Rachel Mamain. She is the author of Mastering Stocks and Broth- Broths, <laughs> a comprehensive culinary approach to using uh, sorry, using traditional techniques and no waste methods. She's also the founder of Brooklyn Bullion. And so this book, I we didn't really talk that much about this book. It is really an extensive encyclopedia of all these classic stocks from, you know, usually see these things, you know, tucked in the back of a book. Um, But, you know, you really went for it here. And I'm just curious, like, have you seen any other books like this that just talk about, you know, mastering stocks and the techniques of all kinds, all animals? Or is this like sort of a first in your opinion?
3: So when when Chelsea Green approached me to write the book, it was right when bone broth started trending. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that. Yeah, I think that this was like, it
2: came about at the time that sort of hit the zeitgeist. But there's, I've never seen any historical books that like go into detail about all these different types of socks. You know, prior to that, you know, it's been just at the beginning of a book, of any cookbook, you know, as like just one section or maybe as part of a recipe. But you really dug through to find all the classic techniques. Well, curious well, how you chose them. Yeah.
3: Yes. Yeah, so, so what I was going to say is, is that Chelsea Green gave me an opportunity to look at it from a historical perspective, a nutritive perspective, um, and and I was able to apply classic technique and uh, and also reach the the modern consumer to to understand what they're looking for when um when they go to market to mm-hmm. source ingredients and how they want to apply it um in the home. Yeah. I I wanted to give an objective perspective. I did have a couple of other opportunities to write um a book, but they both wanted me to write about bone broths and I didn't think that was the whole story. Mm. So,
2: all right. Well, um I think it's really actually very practical. I mean, I don't I don't even even eat that much meat, but I end up with a lot of bones. I also ended up with a lot, end up with a lot of kitchen scraps. So making broth is something that is probably a wise decision for most anyone to do. Not to mention, I want to also <laughs> say that making stocks, and, and, like, leaning over it gives you a wonderful, like, little steam facial. <laughs> just trying to be more, more Gwyneth-esque for you right. there.
3: Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Not I'm, um, I'm going to promptly go read Goop for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, what do you
2: think are the the best bones for just a home cook to to save? Like, oh, don't let those
3: ones go to waste because those are really good for flavor or something. So uh, it it depends on the animal, um, Mm -hmm. and and of course there's vegetables to consider as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, you have lots of vegetable stocks here too. Yes. Uh, So meaty bones from the neck or leg of large animals, um, a small amount of marrow bones. I I like cross-section cuts where the marrow is visible, so fat renders out during the roasting process. Mm -hmm. Knuckles in large animals, trotters from pork, feet from poultry, all three of these types of bones uh, are where collagen reside mm. and that's what renders into gelatin so that's where you get the jiggle uh, and, <laughs> and the most important well that's part... not all where I get the jiggle but... <laughs> <laughs> that's true uh, and, the, and the most important part is that bones of animals that are cultivated by small responsible farmers who raise animals on pasture and care about their welfare uh, it doesn 't only make a difference in the animals lives uh, but also in the health of the soil and uh, and in the flavor of the final product
2: wow so it 's really like you know you 're letting to you know you 're letting some serious culinary gold go to the waste if you if you don 't use these all up um, but what other uses for bones are there besides stocks? Um, have you find any, found any particularly fun?
3: fun things to do with them? Yeah, this is a fun question for me. When I used to produce stocks out of an incubator kitchen in Sunset Park, the people who worked there would rush over at the end of a production cycle. And we would pack quart containers of spent chicken feed and meaty marrow bones for them to take home. What did they do with them? Well, I don't. So, so let me let me say, I don't know if that was legal. <laughs> so, so, but for me, it was an endearing part of the process uh-huh. um, because it pointed out how one person might see gold where another sees garbage. Um, I mean, you know, the, the the quality of the bones that we use are so high that after you render it for for in one batch of stock, it still has a lot of life in them. And as the cost of bones have increased, and we've essentially driven ourselves out of market as, as a small producer of stocks, um, I, it, it got me to thinking about how to extend the, the life of each batch. And uh, from, one each ba- from, from one batch of bones, you can make a concentrated culinary stock, a flavorful broth, gelatin powder, dog food, fertilizer, even compostable bone char like they're doing at Blue Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the fat cap on some stocks, like a heritage, um, a heritage pork stock um, or a grass-fed beef or chicken. stock.
2: chicken. I see chicken fat. On the top of stocks and yes. chicken too. Um,
3: well, yeah. uh, and and the ones with a with a really thick fat cap, mm-hmm. um, you can produce whipped marrow butter, uh, cured pistat, um and what then is that uh, and and <laughs> even soap and cosmetics. Pistat is uh, it's a it's a cured lard uh, that is a specific pro- uh, product that comes from a small oh. village in Italy. What they do is they they take. Um, they they take uh, pork fat oh, and they think I've seen cure it with uh, with small diced vegetables and other Ooh. aromatics and salt. Um, they wrap it like you would salami and they cure it in a dark cellar. Wow. With, um, from anywhere from a few weeks to six months, uh, they take it out of the wrap and they pack it in jars. They do this at the end of the autumn harvest uh, for hogs um, to make use of all the fat um, and give it a, a longer shelf life. And then uh, you just throw it in the pan um, to build up flavors. Wow. So it's almost
2: like the, the, that fat part of the prosciutto without the meat, right? Yeah. The, the yeah. similar curedness. Or Lardo is that like Lardo or no
3: well, it is like Lardo yeah. um at the end of it though it, it it's almost um it's almost a paste mm, where you put in it, yeah, yeah. it's not just one piece yeah yeah yeah
2: oh that's that's fascinating um. Wow. So
3: what did what did those people who were taking your bones, what what were they
2: making with them? You don't know. Um,
3: I, I mean, honestly, there was a lot of meat on them still. Oh, okay. And it. and that that's what made me realize that they're, they're, I, they're I mean, They're valuable. Yeah. Yeah. It was something that I wanted to share, obviously. But mm-hmm. as a business owner, I, I realized that maybe there was uh, there was another place I could go. It's important to note, though, that. Um, that what what I'm focused on right now is is infrastructure and economic development in the right. Hudson Valley. And what I'm working on with an environmental engineer is to figure out the efficiency quotient on this process. Um, how long of, does it take? What to do with the bones after you make stocks. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I mean, because at a certain point, byproduct is waste. Mm-hmm. and And i you know I, I tend to be pretty I- idealistic, and so i'm trying to be realistic in this approach to see yeah. um, where where we call it a day so in the meantime, should home cooks try to make this pistade or what what should we do with their bones well i'm actually working on a pist- i am i'm I'm working on the development of pistade, um, uh using a specific type of heritage that's awesome. hog fat um, that um that some colleagues down South have been working on, on hybrid um, breeds and, uh, or crosses. And, um, and so it will be interesting to see how taking the fat cap and applying a similar methodology uh, renders um, a similar product. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and I mean, I can go into detail, but, but the main difference between, Lard and a fat cap is that the fat cap is going to still have moisture in it. Yeah, and so yeah. when you're curing something, um, mm-hmm. humidity and moisture are of, of utmost upmo- importance. i got to try this stuff. Yeah, it's delicious. Pistat. Um
2: So you mentioned something about dog food. Yeah. Um, how do you, I know you have a dog too. Yes. And so do I. How do I do something with the bones? Be, a lot of the times it's chicken bones. You know, I'll make a chicken stock. But I know dogs shouldn't eat chicken bones, so right. Can we can we do anything with that?
3: Yes, uh, you can you can dry them and grind them. Okay. And I I go into that in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with with the absolute caution of don't don't feed dogs brittle bones. Yeah. But if you make uh, if you make powder from yeah. uh, from the bones, um, then um, you can use the bone meal to build dog food.
2: That sounds awesome. Yeah. And maybe also, can I use that as a home fertilizer for my plants too? I know bone meal is something that is often in fertilizer. Yes, I yeah. focus on fish
3: bones in the ah. in the book because they're thinner okay, they're, and they're yeah. easier to to grind. to grind.
2: That's a good idea. So, okay, so I need to be making a lot of stock, and I only have so much room in my freezer for both saving bones and then saving the finished stock often unless you like eat a lot of or drink a lot of stock and soup a lot um any tips for making better use of
3: that you mean in, in terms of storing yeah. stocks? well i prioritize so so if a beef stock takes longer to make than a chicken stock then beef stock is going to take priority in my freezer than chicken stock um, I, I also um, I always have a little jar of or a little container rather of demi glace, uh, mm-hmm. which is um, really stock reduced, that's yeah. been reduced with uh, a classic espanol sauce, um, and uh, because it has the tomato paste in it, uh, it never really gets frozen. So you can take a warm spoon oh, and dip it in okay. the container. And just throw it, um, throw it in the dish that you're making. And demi-glace is what you should be
2: using a lot of in soup. I mean, in just cooking in general.
3: Well, so so demi-glace is like the founder.
2: And, it's like the grandmother, right?
3: And, and, <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. It's a foundational. Um, uh, it, it is fundamental. Uh, it it does have specific uses. Um, I I would say. Um, For instance, Cassoulet comes to mind when I think of Mm -hmm. demi-glace. But you're not always going to use a demi-glace. It's great to have on hand,
0: uh, Mm -hmm. but
3: it's exceptionally rich and... uh, so I think more about fall and winter dishes when, when, yeah, yeah, yeah. Comes to mind. you know,
2: I, I came up with a good idea though, I think, um, which is to reduce more stocks exactly. and just make a really, really concentrated stock to keep in your freezer that you can add water to. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just yeah. Sort of like those, those cans of condensed stock.
3: Yes. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> then can you put in a can actually?
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, no. well, I, I mean, there's, there's, a, a lot of, uh, caution and hesitation that should go in. Into, into home canning, canning yeah. because stocks are low acid. For um, her, yeah. And also Stocks. Uh, you add salt at the very end, uh, and you never add so much that it, it's going to why, affect the why flavor. Why is that,
2: though?
4: Um,
3: well, as the as the stock reduces uh, while it's being made, the flavors concentrate, and so if you salt too early, then you have there's a good chance that you're you're going to end up with a really salty base. Oh, okay, yeah, and, yeah it's to prevent you from oversalting, yeah. And so, um, so when when you can something. Um, with, uh, with a low pH, uh, it, um, it, it enters risk. and mm. so it, it's why my company is a frozen product company. Yes It's yes. the easiest market. It has the, in my opinion, the most integrity. When you can something for retail, you have to uh, put citric acid or other additives in it that completely change the, the profile. And I wasn't willing. I, I figured I'll just take on frozen, you know, the the, the, the complexity of, mm-hmm. of a frozen food product. Uh,
2: I think it's an awesome idea. <laughs> and I can't wait to see where it goes. But um, it looks like that's about all the time we have for today. Um, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. And congratulations on this amazing book. Oh, thank you. It really is quite, um, It's it's extensive, but it's really fun, I have to say. So I hope everyone gets a... Uh, their hands on it. It's just out this Tuesday. This is a preview from
3: Chelsea Green. And we're having a launch party at Jimmy's number 43 at 6pm on Wednesday and everybody is welcome to join. We'll be there. All right. Thanks Thanks so much much.
2: Rachel. Thanks everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. See ya.
0: Oh I like the way you
5: Fresh Pickings is a podcast by Heritage Radio Network presented by Bob's Red Mill. Love learning about food? Get more superfood for your brain with the featured podcast miniseries Fresh Pickings. Go to bobsredmill.com slash Pickings.
1: Faro is an ancient grain with an impressive pedigree, clouded by tenuous designations and contradictory classifications. But at the end of the day, it's a delicious, versatile, and relatively accommodating grain. So, we're going to hopefully clear up some of the confusion and understand Faro a little better. To do that, I'll be talking to Linda Palacio, host of A Taste of the Past, about this grain's storied history. Then I'll head into the Roberta's kitchen to get their porridge recipe and find out why the Roberta chefs are so fond of farro. Welcome to Fresh Pickings. I'm your host, Kat Johnson. Stay tuned. You may know that farro is one of the so-called ancient grains, along with quinoa, buckwheat, chia, and more. As the name implies, ancient grains are those that have been changed very little by selective breeding from their original domesticated varieties. In other words, they're basically the same as they were 10,000 years ago. These days, ancient grains is kind of a buzzword. You'll see it in newspapers' food sections, on Cheerios boxes. Even Papa John's gluten-free crust is claiming ancient grains as ingredients. But obviously, they're not new— And in the past, they were better known as heritage grains. Here at Heritage Radio Network, that word holds a lot of meaning for us. So to talk about what heritage actually means, I went to Patrick Martins, who founded Heritage Foods USA and Heritage Radio Network. Patrick, can you tell us exactly what heritage means when we're talking about food?
5: Well, on the most basic level, Cap, a heritage breed is one that's been unchanged by selective breeding or genetic modification. I founded Heritage Foods USA to create a market for heritage breeds of turkey, pork, beef, and chicken. Farmers who grow these breeds can't rely on commodity markets because the animals take time to grow. They just aren't suitable for factory farming, and that's a good thing. Heritage Genetics preserve biodiversity, and ours are raised without antibiotics using traditional farming methods. Plus, they taste a hell of a lot better.
1: I will vouch for that. So does the same concept apply to heritage grains?
5: Totally. In the same way that heritage breeds haven't been changed to suit factory farming, these heritage grains haven't been modified either. These older strains of wheat and grains are gaining more and more attention because they taste better, they're better for the world.
1: So in the case of meat and plants, heritage not only means traditional, it means that it's better for our health and the environment.
5: Yes! Eat more heritage foods!
4: When we're talking about ancient grains, faro is about as ancient as they get.
1: I'm talking faro with Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past here on Heritage Radio Network. Linda is a culinary historian and the perfect person to take us back in time. What's the story with faro, Linda? How old is it really?
4: Faro dates to the inception of domesticated plants and the advent of farming in Mesopotamia or the Fertile Crescent. So we're talking about... 12,000 to 9,000 BC. For a long time, farro fed almost the entire Mediterranean and Near East. It's been found in the tombs of Egyptian kings and is said to have fed the Roman legions.
1: Wow, that's pretty old. So is the faro that we eat today the
4: same as what the Egyptians and the Romans ate? Farro is a term commonly used when referring to three ancient wheat varieties, or triticum. Today they're very popular in Italy. Spelt, the first variety, is called farro grande, or big farro. Emmer, which is Hebrew for mother, is called farro medio, or medium. And the third and smallest of the varieties is einkorn, which is German for one kernel. The Italians call that one farro piccolo, or little farro.
1: So with all of these differences, who's eating what and where?
4: Regional differences in what is grown locally and eaten as farro as well as the similarities between the three grains, has definitely led to some confusion. Emmer is the most widely available in the United States and by far the most common variety grown in Italy. The mountain regions of Tuscany and Abruzzo are covered in it. So why is emmer so popular? Emmer is considered higher quality for cooking than the other two grains, and it's sometimes called the true farro. Spelt is much more commonly grown in Germany and Switzerland, where people use it in much the same way, as is a or French for spelt in France, and might therefore also be called faro. Emmer is often confused with spelt, though it is entirely a different species. To make things even more confusing, faro and barley are often referred to interchangeably because of their similar characteristics.
1: So when exactly did farro become popular in
4: the U.S.? Some would say that farro is an overnight sensation in modern cuisine. It's actually been on menus in the United States for several decades, though historically it was rarer and harder to get. In fact, American chefs used to fight for supply, as farro allocation here was like fine wine. Thanks to increased availability and the ever-growing interest in rustic Italian food, farro has grown exponentially in popularity in the last few years.
1: Whenever I look out of the Heritage Radio Network studio, I look right into the Roberta's dining room. I usually get really hungry for pizza, but sometimes I have to explore the other parts of the menu. One of my favorite non-pizza items at Roberta's is the porridge. So I went inside the kitchen to ask Chef Jackie, what goes in this dish? Hi, Jackie. Thanks for having me in the Roberta's Kitchen today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Welcome. So tell me about this dish.
6: This is our farro porridge. It started out... We actually did a version of this dish in the winter, so it was a little bit heartier. We were doing it with kale and some other winter veg. But as spring rolled around, we kind of just wanted to create this lighter version of it because it was pretty popular. Would you like to hear about it? Yes! (laughs) So we just... Cook the faro really simply, uh, just in water with a little bit of salt. That's it. And then on the pickup, we mix it with a pea puree that is seasoned with shiradashi, which is just a Japanese dashi base. It gives it a lot of umph, you know, that little like in the back of your brain flavor that you're not really sure what it is. A little bit of Parmesan cheese, some English peas, and grilled asparagus. Right now we're using fava leaves. Sometimes we use pea leaves. It really just depends. And then we are finishing it with some mint and arugula, which we're getting from our garden.
1: Why did you decide to put a farro dish on the menu at Roberta's?
6: Well, it's just really a versatile grain. Pretty popular right now, actually. People really are into grain bowls and stuff like that. So, I mean, including myself, when I go out to eat, it's like what I want to eat, some grains and veg and, you know, light and healthy. So that's kind of how we came to that.
1: Do people usually have this as a meal by itself? Yes. Nice. Or with a pizza.
6: Or Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Every everything on our menu pairs well with pizza.
1: Yes. <laughs> and tell me some other ways that you like to cook and eat farro, either at the restaurant here
6: or at home. At the restaurant, because I have access to certain equipment, like a deep fryer, I really like doing crispy grains, uh, crispy farro, so cooking it and then letting it air out a little bit so it it loses some of the moisture and then frying it and mixing it into other grains so you get that nice little crunch
1: that's interesting yeah cool well thanks jackie this is awesome and i can't wait to eat this
6: uh my pleasure thanks for having me
1: Thanks to Chef Jackie of Roberta's for sharing tips for using farro. You can find the recipe for Roberta's porridge at bobsredmill.com slash pickings. Be on the lookout for the next episode of Fresh Pickings. In the meantime, you can learn more about Bob's Red Mill's favorite ingredients and check out some delicious recipes and great coupon offers at bobsredmill.com freshpickings fresh pickings. Bob's Red Mill is a believer in good food for all. That's it for today. I'm Kat Johnson. Thanks for joining us.